God, we know that you have risen. It's not just a a, a celebration that we do that remembers this just years ago, but God, we celebrate this knowing that you have risen every single day. That God, there's no point in which death will hold you again. God, that you are faithful to your promises. God, we lift you up this morning and proclaim to the world that you are risen. We love you. In your name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. It can be found starting on page 822 in the Bible under your seat. Matthew 17, verses 1 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one, but Jesus only. This is the word of the Lord. If you're not regularly with us, uh, we want to say welcome to you. I'm not the regular guy. Um, That would be Mike. Um, The guy was somewhere, he's here this morning, but it, uh, his wife, Ashley, had a baby this week, um, so, so congr- congratulations to him. Um, so I'm, I'm, just the, I'm just the fill-in, uh, and I look through my closet for an Easter flannel shirt. I couldn't find one, so you'll, have, you'll just have to put up with it. Um, <laughs> We live in an age that prizes celebrity, but uh, we use the term celebrity to describe people who manage to command the spotlight, command the attention, particularly of the, of the mass media. People who, for whatever reason, reasons that are sometimes even difficult to grasp, they tarry in the spotlight a bit longer. We all supposedly have 30 minutes of fame, but celebrities, they seem to to tarry there just a bit longer than, than the rest of us. There are a few uh, whose beauty or wealth or achievement or influence is celebrated, sometimes even in the absence of actual achievement. Uh, hashtag Kardashian. I mean, this, this, this is the sort of people that we, we look at as celebrities. 
somehow that creates in us a kind of, a kind of obsession. I mean, you think about it, you're checking out in the, in the grocery store, you know, you're going about your mundane lives, and all of a sudden you're, you realize that you're surrounded by stars, by fame, by celebrities. Who among us doesn't imbibe the guilty pleasure of checking out the headlines of the tabloids as we go through the checkout line? Jen's pregnant with Brad's baby. (laughs) They haven't been together for years. Angelina is furious with Jen. Angelina is pregnant with Brad's baby. (laughs) Brad is pregnant with an alien's baby. (laughs) I knew there was something different about that guy. That's it. I'm in. Totally worth two bucks. Somehow, we just, we just want to be near it. Or even just imagine that we're near it. It's like two teens sitting in a sidewalk cafe on Hollywood Boulevard, and someone beautiful walks by, but they're not quite sure if it's a celebrity. Maybe it's just somebody kind of beautiful. They look vaguely familiar in a kind of run-up for best supporting actress a few years ago kind of way. But they're not sure. Is that someone famous? They whisper to each other. I don't really know, but, but let's ask him for an autograph just in case. I teach at a seminary, and some students, they don't really go in for the, you know, you have to know seminary students, they don't really go in for the regular celebrities. They go in for scholar celebrities. You probably never even heard the names that get dropped on a seminary campus. For reasons that we can't describe, glory is important to us. We want to be near it. We want to bask in it. As though through mere proximity, some of that glory might somehow cling to us. That we might reflect a bit of it. In some ways, the term celebrity is the poor cousin of a biblical word, glory. Glory is one of those slippery words that's as difficult to define as it is to grasp, to understand. For those who have it, there's something about them that suggests an otherness. An ability or a quality possessed perhaps by everyone in some measure, but by a few, and perhaps even if only for a moment, by only one, That quality or ability is possessed in a surpassing way, to some surpassing measure. Last Sunday, we got home from church just in time to see the very end of the Masters. Tiger Woods wins the Masters, and as that small white ball drops into a small white hole, concluding one of the greatest comebacks in sports history, the announcer hails it as a return to glory. Well, that quality or ability, as in the case of golf, might be relatively narrow. Say it's the ability to make a ball go through a hoop or go over a wall. Or maybe it's, it's beauty. Beauty that's so striking, so susceptible to airbrushed perfection 
that the person possessing it seems almost to shine from within. Such a person stands apart from everyone else. For whatever it is, for whatever reason it is, and for however long it lasts, usually not very long, the one who has it has glory. He or she stands alone. Not just apart from all others. That could be exposing. Even shame. Shameful. But above all others. It's a kind of transcendence. That's what makes glory hard to define. It's not a tangible attribute of transcendence. It is transcendence itself. And more than that, it's transcendence that's come close. Transcendence that's drawn near. In Matthew 17, we see what happens when ordinary people like you and me catch a glimpse of true glory. Not just celebrity, but true glory. It's a story that's puzzling on a first read, and and it gives you a headache on the next few reads. But when its rays finally break through, it makes you ache as with a memory of your one true home. A home to which you've somehow lost the way. You're no longer sure that home's even real, or whether you've actually ever been there, or that you could find it even if it were. We're told that six days after the dramatic disclosure of his identity as the Messiah and his prediction of his approaching death, Jesus takes three of his disciples, we'll see why these three in just a moment, Peter, James, and John, and he goes up to a high mountain where he was the text tells us, transformed or transfigured before them. We're not given the particulars except to say that Jesus experienced a transformation in his appearance that was so dramatic and so dazzling that light seemed to radiate outward from his person. Matthew, like Mark and Luke, is struggling to find language that is adequate to to describe what they saw. We're told that his clothes became this brilliant white. But Matthew draws particular attention to Jesus' face, which he says was radiant with light, like the sun. It's a scene so weird and wonderful that it's difficult to know what it means. But the change in Jesus' appearance, that's not the end of it. Two long-departed figures from Israel's past, Moses and Elijah, they suddenly make an appearance alongside of Jesus. We're not told how the disciples recognized them for who they were. It certainly doesn't come from subsequent reflection or, or, or explanation. They recognize who they were in the, in the moment without being told. For all that Peter gets wrong in the moment, he instantaneously, maybe just intuitively, recognizes that this is Moses and Elijah, the two great prophets of Israel's history, the bringer of the law, that sort of first prophet to come come back to Israel, to call them back to the law. Peter, of course, he's the consummate verbal processor. I don't know, maybe some of you are, are... are like that. 
And he says, it's good for us to be here, possibly meaning it's a good thing that you brought the three of us because we can do what needs to get done. And then he follows that up with a suggestion. It's a suggestion that borders on the bazaar. I know what we should do. Let's, let's build three tents. One for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. Before Peter's even finished speaking, the brilliance of this scene gets brighter still. This cloud, this luminous cloud descends, and it envelops the mountain, envelops all of them, and a voice speaks from the cloud, and the voice speaking from the cloud echoes the words, the same words that were spoken at Jesus' baptism. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. That's the only part that's added from the baptism, and that part seems to be addressed specifically to Peter. In other words, Peter, stop talking. Shut up. Listen. Well, the three disciples, of course, are, are overwhelmed with, with terror at this moment, and we don't know when the transfigura- transfiguration ended. We don't know how long it lasted. But perhaps Jesus still is luminous when he comes over to them as they're face down to the ground. The text says he touches them. He touches them. And emboldened by his touch, they look up and they see Jesus all alone. Whatever we're meant to make of the story, it is unmistakably a story about glory. I think Matthew wants us to see four things about the glory that's displayed in the transfiguration. And there's a number of these that are surprising. But the first thing that he wants us to see is that this glory isn't what we have, but it resembles what we lost. Like many stories, the story of the transfiguration has a backstory. And to make sense of it, it's important to know something of this backstory. It's important to see that the backstory for the transfiguration goes all the way back to the beginning when God created humanity in his image. That has created humanity to reflect his glory, created them to govern his creation as he would, a mirror image of his glory spread throughout the earth. That's what he made them for. And to the psalmist, this is an extraordinary thing. Psalm 8 says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And notice this phrase, son of man, that you would bother with him. You crowned him with glory, and yet you crowned him with glory. It's humanity, the Son of Man is humanity in all of its frailty, and yet crowned with glory. That is, called by God, commissioned by God to image his glory to all of creation. Little wonder that the first humans were naked and unashamed. They're crowned with glory. But humanity rejected this calling, choosing instead the false glory of autonomy, choosing to stand alone, to stand apart, even from God, not wanting to reflect his glory, but wanting to lay claim to their own glory. And what we found, we humans, is that we could stand alone. We could stand apart. What we found was that our glory was actually shame. Shame that we felt before God, shame that we felt before others. 
created to reflect the glory of God, we choose our own way and we choose our own false glory. What's extremely important to see that Matthew frames this story of the transfiguration as a son of man story. It's a story about the revelation of the son of man. Both before and after the story, Jesus refers to the son of man. This was Jesus' way of a favorite way, of course, of referring to himself. Nobody else ever uses it. He uses it constantly, but always in reference to himself. That's a puzzling phrase. It's an odd phrase, but it was a way of connecting his identity and mission to God's purpose, his original purpose, for humanity. See, Son of Man is simply a designation for humanity in its frailty, desperately limited and yet endowed with an extraordinary gift, the calling to image the glory of God by sharing in his rule. But that's where humanity failed. The prophet Daniel sees a vision, Daniel chapter 7, of, in which humanity is portrayed as a secession of beasts. They've lost their humanity. Instead, they become like beasts, exploited and exploiting Corrupted and corrupting, violated and violent. But Daniel keeps seeing, he keeps looking until one like a son of man comes on the scene. This is humanity reduced to one. Humanity reduced to one. Because all the rest of humanity has become bestial. But this one hasn't. And as he comes on the clouds before the ancient of days, God invests him with the universal rule and the universal sovereignty that he had meant for humanity in the beginning. That's who the Son of Man is in Daniel's vision. That's what we see in the transfiguration. Humanity reduced to one and radiant in his reflection of the glory of God. Here in this transfiguration scene in Matthew 17, Jesus' face is glowing like the sun. But we shouldn't understand this as the revelation of Jesus' deity any more than his resurrection is the proof that he's God. After all, we will be raised. That, of course, is true, but that's not what this transfiguration is. Jesus is showing the disciples what they were made for. This is what it means to be in the image of God. This is the incarnate God reintroducing humanity to their humanness. Reintroducing humans to their humanity. That's what the transfiguration is. In his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory... C.S. Lewis speaks of humans as they will one day be, as in fact they once were. He stresses the, the extraordinary importance of remembering the glory that humans once had and may one day have again, especially in the way that we think about people around us. Now this is hard to do. It's hard to do because we have come in many of our so you know interactions, we've become sort of subhuman. 
But Lewis writes, it's a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you, you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. Lewis goes on. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All of our friendships. All of our loves. All of our play. All of our politics. There are no ordinary people, Lewis writes. You have never taught to a mere mortal. It is with mortals uh, whom we joke with, work with. Immortals that we marry. Immortals that we snub and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. And what that means is that our love must be real and costly. No mere tolerance of one another. No mere indulgence, which parodies love, but true and costly love. We bear the weight of glory. We bear the weight of glory. It isn't what we have, but resembles what we lost. The second thing that I think is important to see is that it isn't ours to grasp, but it's God's to give. It isn't ours to grasp, but it's God's to grant. See, glory is not inherent in us as humans. It never can be and never will be. It's not achievable. It can only be imaged. It can only be reflected. Just prior to the transfiguration, Peter thought he had it all figured out. Now, when the person you just ID'd as Christ, the Son of the living God, turns to you and addresses you as Satan, that's not a good look. <laughs> the problem for Peter is that, is that being the Messiah, that means certain things. And being the alpha dog of the disciple, that means certain things. It means you get paid. It means not only you pass go, but you spend some time on Park Place and Boardwalk. And Peter's not alone in the assumption. A few chapters on, James and John are going to come to Jesus with a similar notion. The glory of the Messianic kingdom is just almost in their grasp. And they want it. And they're jockeying for positions. Peter, James, and John, of course, are no different from the other disciples. They're just the three that are picked out as particular exemplars of that grasping for glory. And it's perhaps why those three are brought by Jesus to this mountain and later brought by Jesus into Gethsemane. It's difficult to know what Peter was thinking when he proposed the three tents. Don't think he's thinking of a kind of an extended camping trip. That's not what he's after here. But when Jesus shows up with two figures whose return 
had figured importantly in Jewish expectations about what this glorious future kingdom would look like, Peter, alongside the glorious Messiah, I mean, Moses and, and Elijah, alongside the glorious Messiah himself, well, Peter, he puts two and one together, and he concludes that he must have been right after all. This is the time for the glory. Surely to have the promised return of Elijah, the promised coming of a prophet like Moses, and the promised Messiah all together in one place, shining like the sun itself, that can only mean the arrival of glory. The time is here. But this Jesus, he's a tricky bloke. And he clearly needs some coaching up on the glory thing. So Peter floats an idea. Hang on. I've got it. Let's hold on to this. Let's build three shelters, sort of like the Israelites in the wilderness before they conquered the land. Maybe take a day or two to map out a strategy for our conquest. Maybe order a load of mega hats, you know, make Israel great again. We've got to be ready. Because now that Elijah and Moses and Messiah are here, we are definitely going to make it happen. Luke cuts Peter some slack with his parenthetical comment that Peter didn't know what he was saying. (laughs) But I think we know what he was doing. He was grasping for glory. Grasping for glory. But this glory thing isn't ours to grasp. It's God's to grant. And God is very clear in the Old Testament, I will not share it. I will not share my glory with another. Because his glory is, it's unshareable. It's singular. If, it, if he wasn't singular in all of his attributes, in all of his ways, we couldn't describe it as true glory. But he is transcendent. He stands apart. He stands alone. He stands above everything and everyone. So he doesn't so much give us glory or share his glory, but what he does do is create us in his image so that we can reflect his glory. That's what the disciples haven't quite grasped. And I think if we were honest, neither have we. We know we'll never be famous. We're reconciled to the fact that we don't have perfect bodies. I gave that up a long time ago. But we're, we're making it. Maybe not even doing too badly. Got a little bit of money in the bank. We know we're not singularly gifted. We're singularly accomplished. And yet we stay perfectly busy building our little kingdoms where we maintain an illusion of control and the accoutrements of status trying to ensure that all eyes are on us. How much of what we do, or how much of what we say, or how much of what we post online takes the form of subtle, socially acceptable self-promotion? How well are we doing in, in organizing our lives around other people? This isn't mere unselfishness. 
It's love. It's where our desire for our lives becomes indistinguishable from our desires for the good of others. That's love. That's the glory of God. Well, the third thing that we see in this text is that it isn't momentary greatness, but cruciform goodness. That glory isn't momentary greatness, it's cruciform goodness. The appearance of Moses and Elijah is puzzling, um, but I think it's, there's, a, there's, there's some reasons why it's these two in particular. Not only were they sort of expected eschatological figures, or that is, figures who were expected for the future when God brought his kingdom, but they're described in the Old Testament as the two figures who went up to high mountains and before whom God caused his glory to pass. These are the two premier examples, two two premier witnesses of the glory of God in the Old Testament. These were the ones to whom God's holy otherness, his transcendence, drew nearest. These are the ones who came closest to knowing what it means to be in the presence of pure truth. To be in the presence of pure beauty. Pure goodness. For that to draw so unimaginably close, these were those two guys. In Exodus 33, when Moses asked God to show him his glory, the Lord said, this is how it's going to happen. I'll do that. But this is what's going to happen. I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. And as I pass, in all of my goodness, I will proclaim my name, the Lord. I will have mercy. And this is what my name means. It means I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In other words, when God caused his glory to pass through Moses, pass in front of Moses, what Moses was in the presence of was goodness and mercy and compassion. The essence of it itself. And so we were told that when Moses came down the mountain, his face was glowing, reflecting at least temporarily his encounter with the glory and the goodness and the mercy and the compassion of God. Despite their brevity, the words spoken by the voice from heaven evoke a a whole host of biblical texts. Commentators point especially to Psalm 2, a text in which the Davidic king is addressed as the Son of God. It's an enthronement psalm. He's the one who rules perfectly as the representative of God. But he also cites Isaiah 42. You are my beloved son the son whom I love. And that's a text that's addressed to the servant of the Lord. Now, it's that same servant that we meet again in Isaiah 53, the one who would become both a light for all nations, but who would also give his life as a sacrifice for his people. And we would miss, I think, something hugely significant if we didn't notice that the the revelation of the Son of Man in glory at the transfiguration is in the first instance a revelation of the glory of God. But it's the glory of God 
and the shame of crucifixion. See, it's often said that the lesson of the transfiguration is that the road to glory must pass through suffering. And I think that's right. But there's something else here, something way more profound. Something that Matthew wants us to see. You see, what happens here in the transfiguration is a kind of preview. But it's a preview of something that we don't expect. Once more in Matthew's gospel, Jesus will be surrounded by two figures. But they will be bandits, not prophets. Once more, three disciples will be mentioned as waiting on Jesus. But they will be grieving women, not dazzled men. Once more, Elijah will be mentioned in connection with Jesus. But because he is absent not present. Once more, Jesus' clothes will be mentioned, not because they glow and glisten, but because mocking soldiers strip them from him and tear them to pieces. Once more, someone will declare that Jesus is God's Son, but it will be a Roman soldier, not a voice from a cloud that's glowing with light. What is it that Matthew wants us to do? What is it he wants us to see? What I think he wants us to see is that that Moses, what Moses saw when God caused his glory to pass by him and Moses sensed the goodness of God and the mercy of God and the compassion of God and that for Moses was the revelation of the glory of God. That's what we see when we see Jesus hanging in crucifixion. This was the display, the constant display of God's goodness. This is the constant display of the glory of God revealed as his mercy, as the expression of his mercy and matchless compassion. Perhaps the most counterintuitive, countercultural claim of the gospel is that when we see the crucified Jesus, we behold the glory of God. When we see the Son of God entering into our humiliation, taking our shame, bearing our sin, we not simply see something that God did for us. As amazing as that would be, we see what it means for God to be God. We see what it means for God to be God. We see the glory of God. What does that mean for us? If we have eyes to see the glory of God in the crucified Jesus, we must still reckon with the fact that if his death makes it possible for us to once more reflect his glory... The glory of God that we will image, the glory of God that we will reflect, will be that glory. It will be the glory revealed in the crucified Messiah. It must be his glory that we image, and his glory is the glory of the cross. It must be the glory of a life given for others. That's the glory that we image. The last thing that I think 
Matthew wants us to see is that this glory isn't acquired through acclamation, but restored through resurrection. It isn't acquired through acclamation, but restored through, through resurrection. You see, if the, the transfiguration is a premonition of crucifixion, it's also a premonition of resurrection that anticipates the revelation of the glory of God in the crucifixion as the crucial moment in which God recovers for us the capacity of humanity to reflect His glory, the transfiguration also anticipates the revelation of glory. But the description of Jesus' glory in the resurrection, when we meet it in Matthew 28, it's not what we expect. It's not what we expect. We do meet a figure who's described, and this is very interesting, we do meet a figure in the resurrection narrative who's described very much like Jesus is described in the transfiguration. A figure whose, whose appearance is like lightning, whose clothes are white like snow. But that turns out to be an angel. And when the women who have come to the tomb meet Jesus, he appears to them as just an ordinary dude. Just an ordinary guy. One of the Gospels says that Mary Magdalene thought he was the gardener. I guess she didn't see him, clearly. She thought he was the gardener. Just an ordinary guy. And when he greets them, there's no elevated, sort of mysterious, super spiritual language. I think the, kind of the best translation of the Greek, I mean, in Greek, it's, you know, it's really sophisticated Greek, it means, hey, How's it going? And yet they immediately fall down and they worship him. Hey. And they worship. And later on, the only other meeting with the disciples that Matthew describes, he comes to them again as just an ordinary person, just an ordinary man but an ordinary man with an extraordinary claim. A claim that God has vested all authority in him. This is humanity reduced to one, the Son of Man, doing all that humanity was meant to do, ruling over all that God had made. We're told that the disciples, on hearing this, like the women, fall down in worship. But it says some hesitated. Some hesitated because for the first time in human history, they see the most intensely human person ever doing what humans were meant to do. They see a human as the perfect image of God, reflecting perfectly the glory of God. This worship that they give him is not the acclamation of a human but the worship of God whose glory is perfectly imaged in a human. It's the perfection of that image that shows us that Jesus is God. So the appearance of Moses and Elijah signals, I think, for us something else. It signals what it means for us to be a human. 
Matthew's pretty invested in this notion of the law and the prophets. And that, I think, is what that Moses and Elijah represent. And what I think he's trying to communicate through their presence is something about the nature of the glory that humanity will bear when it is transformed through resurrection. It tells us something about why Jesus doesn't appear with a physical glow the way that he did in the transfiguration. Why he doesn't appear with a physical glow on Easter morning as he did when he was transformed before the three. You see, the glory of humanity that's on display for us in this ordinary person will be glory that gathers into itself the fullness of all that the law and the prophets expected. That when, when humanity was reformed to mirror the moral beauty and goodness and truth of God himself, that's what Moses and the prophets had pointed to. For Matthew, this means one thing. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. On this, the law and the prophets hang. This is what we were made for. We were made for glory. And the glory for which we were made is a glory that comes from loving God and all of his truth and all of his goodness and all of his beauty. It's, these, these three things are what the ancient philosophers called the transcendentals. Those transcendental qualities. These are the things that, in Christian theology, are possessed by God alone. That cause God to stand apart and to stand above all others. These are the things that constitute the glory of God. And if we were to image his glory, if something of the resurrection glory of Jesus is to be reflected in our lives, then we must let his truth, his goodness, his beauty seep into our lives, shaping in turn our minds, our wills, and our hearts. And in the case of the Trinitarian God, truth and beauty and goodness, the things that constitute the glory of God, it always issues in love. It always issues in love. And this is the twofold command. This is the reflection of the glory of God. When we love God who is singularly true and beautiful and good with all of our hearts and with all of our minds, with all of our souls. And the overflow of that is in love for neighbor, a desire for their good and practical action for their good that becomes indistinguishable from our own desires indistinguishable from the desires that we have for good, then we reflect the glory of God. All of this, I think, distilled means that the transfiguration, it points us to Jesus' death. It points us to Jesus' resurrection. And it teaches to abandon our vain desires and our selfish ambitions for something far better. See, to embrace the resurrection is to embrace the glory for which we were made. One of the things I struggled with this week as I wrote the sermon was that this, this passage is so much about God. 
And yet I'd framed all the points about us. I was struggling with that. And in a way, it's true that, you know, this, what the text is telling us is something profound about us. Back in chapter 13, Jesus had told the disciples that a day is coming when the righteous will shine like stars in the image in the, in the heavens. Now here in the transfiguration, they see Jesus' face shining like the sun, the brightest of all the stars. You see, the transfiguration is a kind of preview of possibilities. It's a kind of anticipation of what the cross makes possible and the resurrection achieves. We will be clothed in glory, but it will not be our own glory. It will be his glory. But his glory is our heart's true home. It's the thing for which we were made. Happy Easter.